Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the second of the hearings by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which today focused on the 2020 vote count and how all of Trump's top aides, with the exception of a drunk Rudy Giuliani, told him he had lost the election, which Trump refused to accept because he had no intention of handing over the presidency and is now mounting a comeback to regain power. Joining us is John Boniface, the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as the executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is a winner of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award. We will discuss the strong case presented by the committee that made clear Trump not only manufactured the big lie, but he was also behind the big ripoff, which raised hundreds of millions from his gullible followers that is funding his comeback while intimidating Republican primary candidates into supporting the big lie. Then we'll investigate further whether we are witnessing an effort to educate the American people about a coup attempt against our democracy that almost succeeded and is in effect continuing since the same coup plotter now controls the GOP and is busy working on the next coup. Or are the hearings designed to convince one man, Attorney General Merrick Garland, that he must charge the criminal behind the coup, Donald J. Trump? Joining us is Daniel Weiner who serves as director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Election and Government Program, where he helps to lead the center's work on money and politics, election security, government ethics, and other democracy and rule of law issues. He previously served as senior counsel to Commissioner Ellen Weintraub at the Federal Election Commission, and we will discuss his article at the Brennan Center, measuring the success of the January 6th congressional hearings. Then finally, with Sunday's announcement of a bipartisan deal among senators to do something about gun violence following the Buffalo and Uvalde mass shootings, which 10 Republican senators signed on to, we will speak with John Donahue, a professor of law at Stanford Law School and research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis, and joins us to discuss what is in the Senate's gun safety package and what is not. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is John Bonifaz, who's the co-founder and president of of Free Speech for People, who previously served as the Executive Director and General Counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the Legal Director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney, he has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is the winner of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Boniface. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And what did you make of the second day of the Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, the hearing today in the morning? I thought it was in the evening, unfortunately, but it was in the morning and I watched it all. You got a chance to watch it too, I take it. I, I did. I thought it was a powerful presentation laying out very clearly how Trump and everyone around him knew what they were engaged with in terms of the claims of massive voter fraud in the 2020 election were all lies. Uh, and they just continued to plow forward in this disinformation campaign and this effort, the illegal effort to overturn the 2020 election. What I found most striking was the playing of the deposition excerpts of it of former Attorney General Bill Barr. 
And the reason why I found him most striking is here is an individual who all along during the Trump administration served, in effect, as Donald Trump's private attorney. Uh, he, he blocked the further investigation into the defrauding of the United States coming out of the U.S. Southern District of Attorney's Office, uh, where the U.S. attorney there had already indicted Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, and that led to a federal prison sentence for Michael Cohen, who pled guilty. And Donald Trump, by the prosecutors, federal prosecutors in that matter, was named as individual one who directed that conspiracy to defraud the election. This, of course, dealt with uh, payments to his mistresses as a way of keeping them quiet in the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, and Bill Barr shut down the investigation. He did not want it to reach Donald Trump. Uh, similarly, Bill Barr shut down any uh, you know, follow-up to the Mueller investigation. He put out, as we know, that false executive summary of what the Mueller report had issued in their 10 different distinct counts of obstruction of justice. So this same Bill Barr, who protected Donald Trump for so long during his administration, uh, was finally speaking truthfully uh, before the lawyers taking his deposition as to what he thought of these claims of massive voter fraud. And he, of course, calls them BS. He says they were lies. And yet he says this led to, for him to resign. And yet when he resigns in his public statement, he praises Donald Trump in mid-December of, of 2020. He doesn't come out with a statement saying, I'm resigning because I've been asked to back up these falsehoods and these lies, and this is a danger to our Constitution and our democracy. He doesn't do any of that. He stays quiet. He praises Donald Trump. And it's only because of this investigation are we now learning what Bill Barr really thought and what he really said to Donald Trump in the lead up to January 6th. So this is not an individual that is a profile in courage by any means, but it just highlights the nature of those around him and how they assisted Donald Trump so many times in furthering his conspiracy to overthrow uh, the election or prior to that to engage in illegality during the administration. So in terms of Watergate, and it's the 50th anniversary of Watergate, the key uh, phrase that came out of Watergate was, what did the president know and when did he know it? I got a kind of deja vu sense of that today from today's hearings in as much as they really went to great lengths to make it really clear that Trump was told in no uncertain manner by all of the top people involved in his election campaign, with the exception of Rudy Giuliani, who apparently <laughs> was drunk on the night of the, when right. the election results were coming in. So did you feel that there was a, that sort of deja vu? What did he know and when did he know it? And do you think they successfully made that point clear? I think they definitely made that point clear. And I think in the court of public domain, they're certainly winning the narrative for those who are paying attention to these hearings. Now, that's a big caveat, right? Because one whole network, Fox News, is not even covering these hearings, refuses to uh, air them live. Uh, and that's that's a huge segment of the population that relies on their coverage of the news through that network. But for those who are paying attention, who are listening to the hearing, I think they're making the case uh, that this president knew from the outset that he had lost the election, and yet he went ahead with, as you point out, an intoxicated, intoxicated Rudy Giuliani advising him on election night to just refuse to accept those results and to put out the lie that there was somehow this massive fraud. The big question, of course, out of all of this is, what will the Department of Justice do with this information? And there, I, I, I do fear uh, that we're, we're not going to get the kind of accountability that, that is required under the rule of law, that the American people deserve with respect to this whole seditious attack on the U.S. Capitol and the way in which Donald Trump incited it. I, I just, I, I, I don't unfortunately have faith that this Department of Justice is going to carry out that responsibility. 
And again, I'm speaking with John Boniface, who's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is a winner of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award. So, John, there's always been this kind of idea that the voting machines, uh, the black boxes, and, and your vote's going to be taken away. And, and a lot of the criticism has come from the political left. But now, in terms of Trump's people, criticism of, of the Dominion voting machines came from Rudy Giuliani and this peculiar Kraken lawyer, Sidney Powell. So I always objected to a lot of the criticisms from the left of voting machines because I didn't don't think it's helpful to reinforce despair and that there's no point in voting, that your vote's going to be stolen before you even vote. So what's the status now of that? I mean, obviously, the, the Trump people were fed a, a bunch of lies, but are people now, are they still obsessed about voting machines? Well, this is an important question you're raising, Ian, and I do want to draw a distinction between what computer scientists have said over the years about the vulnerability of systems that are not paper-based uh, and that are connected to the Internet versus what the Trump campaign and his cronies said. What the computer scientists have said, and, and, and we have been involved at Free Search of People in backing up their arguments, is that the way in which we have secure, reliable, verifiable voting is having paper-based ballot systems. That means ensuring that when you want to do a recount or you want to do an audit, you have a record of the voter's intent. And when you have an electronic system that just either spits out a receipt or doesn't even spit out a receipt at all, that's not equivalent to the marking of a paper ballot that a voter does that can then be reviewed in an audit or recount. So that remains the gold standard in many states as a result of these claims by computer scientists have moved over to paper ballot-based systems. You know, there was a fair amount, as you know, of scrutiny of the DRE systems. Those were the direct record electronic devices that were in place in many states. Many states have shelved them because of their unreliability. Um, and, and that is, I think, a continued concern. There's now a whole new focus, for example, on Internet voting, which is one of the most insecure and unreliable ways to cast ballots. And yet companies that are trying to make money in the election industry are, are marketing this as a new way uh, of voting. So we have to be vigilant in the questions around election security, but that doesn't mean that we then immediately, you know, jump to embracing the lies that were told by the Trump campaign. There was no evidence of this massive voter fraud. And I think what it does show is that so long as you have these kinds of systems out there that are connected to the internet or that are not paper ballot based, you feed the possibility that there will be those who use it to make up these kinds of lies. So we're better off altogether having a secure, reliable, and verifiable system that doesn't even allow for that kind of argument to be made. And, and our senior advisor on election security, Susan Greenhall, is one of the leading experts in the country working with computer scientists all over the nation who continue to advocate that we move to those kinds of systems in every state. Well, we have, fortunately, those systems in two of the key, the five states that are, that are basically in contention. And, of course, Trump and the Republicans are moving in these five states to put in compliant uh, secretaries of states, and they're spending a lot of money trying to get them elected. But if you look at the, the key states of Georgia and Arizona, they both have paper ballots, do they not, that were recounted? Well, Arizona certainly did, because Arizona is, is a heavily mail-in voting state, so you're using paper ballots there. Georgia actually uh, did not. Georgia has most of their uh, ballots are cast via ballot marking devices, which are electronic devices uh, that don't involve marking a paper ballot. And um, there's actually litigation uh, that's pending in the Georgia federal court 
around uh, this point and, and the unreliability of this system. And, and it's been brought by you know litigants who long before the 2020 election were making the argument that it's not secure and needs to be replaced by paper-based ballot systems. But as of now, Georgia doesn't ha- yet have that kind of system. But Georgia had a bunch of recounts, did they not? They did. They did. And, and, and their recounts showed there was no basis for this. But again, the, the challenge that we have when we're dealing with an electronic voting system is that it's harder to discern voter intent uh, from a recount going on with that system. What you're looking at are the receipts that come out of the machine that the voter may or may not have reviewed prior to having that ballot cast. And, and uh, that that's the concern uh, going forward is that these kinds of systems are not as reliable as a paper ballot based system. But the paper ballot was invaluable in Arizona yes, because it was. of that bogus cyber ninjas outfit that was a complete farce. But yeah. even they came up, actually they came up with more votes for, for Biden. Yes, and no, without very, paper ballots, it would you wouldn't have had that evidence, right? Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, one of the most celebrated examples that's independent of the whole 2020 episode is what happened in the Al Franken, Norm Coleman race in Minnesota, where it was a razor thin uh, difference between the two candidates running for the U.S. Senate that year. And Norm Coleman was declared the winner uh, initially. But then a recount of all the paper ballots at the paper ballot based state uh, recount showed ultimately that Al Franken had won. It took many months, actually, to do that recount. But ultimately, he was the one who was seated in the U.S. Senate. So there are real reasons to have paper ballot based systems to ensure reliability, security and verifiability. And this is this is an argument that, again, election security experts make, computer scientists make. This isn't just a. Uh, progressive legal advocacy argument. This is actually something that's widely accepted within the computer science community. Well, one of the points that was made at the end of the hearing today was that not only did Trump, you know, create the big lie and manufactured this whole idea that he had won the election and had been stolen from him, that Biden was illegitimate. And you got to admit that it's been an amazing campaign that's metastasized into, you know, what, 70% or 80% of the Republicans believing in it. Yes. Uh, It's just, it's really disturbing how effective it's been. But the point that was also made at the end of today's hearings was that concurrent with the big lie is the big ripoff, where Trump used the big lie to motivate his base to donate money to him. And they showed at the very end the clips of a lot of the people that stormed the Capitol on January the 6th saying that they were doing it because their votes were stolen. Right. No, you're right. There's been an incredible campaign to engage in disinformation, to manipulate people, and to making them think that this was a rigged election. And it's a very dangerous moment for our democracy. But I'll just come back to the point that prior to what happened in the 2020 election, we had a a dangerous occupant of the Oval Office left unchecked. And, you know, uh, the reason why I think it's so critical that we see accountability and we see the rule of law applied to this former president and his cronies is that if not, it's going to send a clear message to future potential occupants of the Oval Office that they can get away with this and worse. And, you know, one has to ask at this moment if they're, if they're holding on to the hope that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department will engage in accountability for Donald Trump over the insurrection and his incitement of it. Where has Merrick Garland been when the president was named as individual one in a conspiracy to defraud the United States in an investigation that his predecessor, Bill Barr, shut down? What he do with that investigation when he became attorney general? Why did he not reopen it? And why was the president not prosecuted just like his former attorney, Michael Cohen, was prosecuted? Where was Merrick Garland on the Mueller report? He came into office, you know, and on day one, he already had a extremely well-briefed, thought out, 
set of uh, facts and arguments of why Donald Trump had committed obstruction of justice 10 separate times. And this was not, you know, some short little investigations we know. This was a lengthy investigation that Robert Mueller oversaw for years. And he had that report. And, and what did he do with it? Where was the prosecution of Donald Trump for obstruction of justice based on what the Mueller report laid out? Where was the prosecution of Donald Trump on his tax fraud, his financial fraud that was supposedly getting investigated also by the Manhattan district attorney until he decided to shelve it for whatever reason. But where, where is the Justice Department on these questions? I mean, all of this leads you to the question, at least, of do we actually have a Justice Department that's intent on holding this former president accountable under the rule of law? I believe at this point the answer is no, and that Merrick Garland is not the right person for the job of attorney general in this moment in history. But if you're if you're one of those people holding on to the idea that Merrick Garland will take what this select committee is putting forward and prosecute Trump, then I'd really like to know the answers to where he has been on these other matters that precede uh, these hearings. Well, just in closing, uh, John, I mean, the evidence is being handed to Garland on a plate here. I mean, yeah. they're using words that indicate criminality. And, you know, Liz Cheney is a, is a lawyer. Uh, she's yeah. being, I think she's being very effective in signaling to him to get off the dime here. So, you know, fingers crossed, I guess. Fingers crossed that we have some coverage there. Uh, but at a certain point, I'm not sure what the point is for people who are still believing that he's going to do something. But at a certain point, the question has to come. If he's not going to do it and the clock is running out, do we make a change at the head of the Justice Department? And and that that is a question I think that is very prevalent. Donald Trump is likely to announce that he will run again in, in 2024. And when he does that, I think we're going to hear a new argument being made as to why the Justice Department cannot do this. And that's because now Trump's a candidate for office again. And we don't want to be prosecuting somebody who's running for office again. Right, the OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, ridiculous memo comes into play where you can't indict a sitting president or a candidate running, I guess. Well, they don't say you can't indict a candidate running, but there will be the optic argument made. Yeah, they they will make that case. And again, uh, the next hearing is on Wednesday morning. So thanks again, John Boniface. I appreciate it. Good to talk with you. And again, I've been speaking with John Boniface, who's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as the executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney, he has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is a winner of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back investigating whether the hearings are an effort to educate the American people about a coup attempt against our democracy or are they designed to convince one man, Attorney General Merrick Garland, that he must charge the criminal behind the coup, Donald J. Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Weiner, who serves as director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Election and Government Program, where he helps to lead the center's work on money and politics, election security, government ethics, and other democracy and rule of law issues. He previously served as a senior counsel to Commissioner Ellen Weintraub of the Federal Election Commission, and he has an article at the Brennan Center measuring the success of the January 6th congressional hearings. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Weiner. So nice to be here with you today. Well, thanks for joining us, Daniel. And uh, in measuring the success of today's second hearing, which focused largely on the 2020 vote count and how, in spite of all the advice from his top aides, uh, President Trump insisted that 
he won the elections and Biden stole it. What was your sense of measuring today's success? I think that today's hearing was successful. Look, I think that they used their hearing on Thursday night to kind of lay out um, the overall case um, that they were going to make. And then this hearing continued to build on that case. And I think it really, in particular, built on the absolutely critical point that uh, this was not uh, a spontaneous, you know, demonstration that went bad. It wasn't a situation where they had a good faith belief that the election, you know, might have been tainted by fraud. They knew they lost. Uh, They knew that there was no uh, realistic or plausible argument uh, that they, you know, had won the election. And yet they continued anyway to attempt to overturn the will of the American voters. Um, And that is crucial. It's crucial from a legal perspective, but it's also crucial from a larger perspective of of really having a national reckoning and coming to a shared understanding of what took place, um, which is, is, is the precondition to being able to prevent it from happening again. But Daniel, when you say they knew, it's looking more and more, as the evidence was presented today, that it's not really much of a they, it's mostly Donald Trump himself and this peculiar group that coalesced around him, led by Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And it turns out that on election night, Rudy Giuliani was drunk. And what we heard from today was literally most of Trump's top officials, both at the Justice Department and in terms of running his election campaign, And they all told him over and over again that he'd lost. And the only person around there that was prepared to tell him that he'd won based on no evidence is Rudy Giuliani. So it's not much of a they, is it? Well, I think it's unavoidable that it includes and is principally focused on President Trump um, and then his, you know, sort of circle of folks, including Giuliani, including Sidney Powell, who who were not... um, you know his usual uh, set of campaign or political aides. Right, they um, weren't. They weren't team normal. They weren't team normal. Although team normal, uh, with all due respect, right? You know, also uh, didn't take every step that they could have to stop this from happening. Uh, team normal, you know, to varying degrees, tried to be the voice of reality. Um, unsuccessfully. But ultimately, the responsibility does lie with President Trump. He was the commander in chief. He was also the leader of his campaign. And he made that decision. I think that uh, part of it, though, is to come to an understanding of uh, the responsibility of the president, but then also of the folks who have abetted him and continue to abet him. Because remember, critically here, um, this is not an issue of the past. The issue here is that you still have lies about the 2020 election and about voter fraud motivating efforts to restrict the right to vote in the states and to interfere with the machinery of elections. And what's critical is that you we have a shared understanding that the factual predicate for these assertions simply wasn't true. Um, and the folks who are continuing to advance them again this is not, um, you know, based in reality. Um, and we need to understand the folks who are still advocating for measures that would would potentially interfere with the 2022 midterms and the 2024 general election, that they are originating these from, from fraudulent statements by the president of the United States. So the president is told many times that he lost. And even on the very night it happened, he was told that he lost um, and then turned to Giuliani, who told him that he should go and say that he won. So when you have a situation like that, where somebody is presented with clear evidence of a fact and then they turn around and do the opposite, and in effect, do they commit a crime? In other words, Trump clearly did know that he didn't win, but it didn't matter because his agenda was that I am going to stay in power no matter what. 
and everything flows from that determination, which began on the very night that he lost the election. I think that there is certainly enough for people to rightly call for uh, an inquiry into whether criminal conduct took place. I'm not a criminal lawyer, and I'm going to be very clear with you. Like Ultimately, that is for uh, prosecutors and for a jury and a judge to decide. But it's important beyond the, the question of whether a crime is provable for us to have a shared understanding that, yes, it appears the law was violated, whether that results in a prosecution or just broadly that we need better safeguards to ensure that the rule of law prevails. And it, and it clearly didn't in this case, um, you know, in a way that we would all have all liked. Ultimately, the transfer of power did take place, but the, the disregard for the legal reality provoked a violent attack on the Capitol, and it is still provoking attacks on our system of elections. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Wiener, who serves as director of the Brennan Centers for Justice's Election and Government Program, where he helps to lead the center's work on money in politics, election security, government ethics, and other democracy and rule of law issues. He previously served as a senior counsel to Commissioner Ellen Weintraub of the Federal Election Commission. And he has an article at the Brennan Center measuring the success of the January 6th congressional hearings. So you've just made the point that it ain't over, right? I mean, we had the insurrection on January the 6th, and subsequent to that, there has been no um, stopping the big lie, and the committee conducting the hearing today made the point that it wasn't only the big lie, it was also the big ripoff, because President Trump used the big lie to raise funds on, and uh, presumably some of these funds have been spent on this ongoing campaign which has many, many Republican-controlled states legislators deciding that they will decide who won the next election, irrespective of the votes. So, as you point out in your article, you say that the committee's investigation is the most consequential congressional investigation in decades. Is that to say, then, Daniel, that it's not just about January the 6th, but it's about the ongoing effort on the part of Trump to essentially steal the next election? Uh, absolutely. The, it's not just about the attack on the Capitol, as terrible as that was. It's about a larger effort that really seeks to undermine our elections and undermine the foundation of our democracy. It's an effort that began actually before the 2020 election, when you had the president of the United States and others, uh, you know, taking systematic steps to undermine confidence in the electoral process, to question uh, the legitimacy of certain people's votes, which I might add were primarily uh, the votes of, of Americans of color, um, particularly African-American and Latino Americans. Um, and then it continued. It continued after the election with uh, fraudulent lawsuits, with, uh, you know, ultimately efforts to pressure the vice president of the United States to try to hijack the vote counting process. And then, of course, it is continuing to this day with election interference efforts and efforts to restrict the right to vote that have no basis in reality, that are ultimately uh, based on a lie. And in all of those instances, I think, yeah, the peril to our democracy continues. And it's very important to look at this in the larger context, which is, again, why I want to emphasize the importance of a kind of a national reckoning and a repudiation of this sort of conduct, that we really do need to have a shared understanding that this is not acceptable. And from that, we need to figure out how to move forward. Well, it is obviously an educational process, and almost all the networks except Fox News are, are carrying it. And I'm not sure how you can educate people in, inside of the Fox News bubble, because on the first um, hearing, Fox didn't even take commercial breaks. So they didn't even want their people to switch to the next channel to see what was happening in the, uh, in the House. So it seems like this education process will probably work with, certainly will work with most Democrats. Maybe it'll work with independents. I'm not sure it's going to work with a lot of Republicans, but maybe some. 
but how much do you think it's this is about educating the public or forcing the hand of one person, and that's Merrick Garland, the uh, head of the Justice Department, the Attorney General? I think it would be a mistake to look at it just in terms of having an influence on one person, the Attorney General. I think that this is about not just educating the public, but but really coming again to that shared understanding. And I will note that in this in that respect, it was very smart of uh, House Democrats to give Congresswoman Cheney uh, not only a prominent role in these hearings, but I think really a role in being one of the driving forces behind them. So the reality is that this is somewhat unprecedented to have a member of the opposing party who was until recently a very high ranking member of the opposing party actually helping to lead these hearings. Um, that didn't happen, for instance, in Watergate, although Republicans sort of eventually came around. Uh, and I think that the fact that you might not be able to reach all Americans, that, you know, the, some portion, say, of the Fox News viewership might not be persuadable, doesn't mean that they can't remind the, the substantial majority of the country that found this episode uh, deeply troubling, that they can't remind them that this is a critical problem. I don't think that that necessarily, you know, you can generalize about sort of electoral outcomes from that. But I think that if we can come to a shared understanding, at least with the large majority of people who care about the rule of law and care about the peaceful transition of power, I think that that will equip us to move forward. And and in that sense, the, these hearings have been well structured to do that because they are partly being led by someone who was, you know, a very prom is a very prominent Republican. Not only in her own right, she's also, you know, the daughter of of a Republican vice president um, who's long been associated with the party. Um, so I do think, in that sense, many Americans are reachable, including Americans who might not particularly like the Democrats or Joe Biden or or even, you know, be ready to vote for them in the next election. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, then uh, Daniel, the problem as you've mentioned the problem is one man it's donald trump he's the problem he's the one that refused to accept that he lost an election and devised all kinds of schemes to undo biden's victory and he continues to do that to this day and then and wednesday's morning's hearings will be dealing with one chapter and that is how this lawyer eastman leaned on on mike pence who later literally was his life was threatened and uh, apparently Trump said to his chief of staff, Meadows, uh, that maybe the mob should have hanged him. I'm paraphrasing that maybe he deserved it. So it is all about one man. So what happens then if before the hearings are over, Trump then declares that he's running for president? Will the Office of Legal Counsel at the, at the Justice Department then treat Trump as a president. I mean, he's, they have this rule that you can't indict a sitting president. Well, he's no longer a sitting president, but if he becomes a presidential candidate, could that change the equation and give Merrick Garland an out in, in not prosecuting him in spite of what the evidence says from these hearings? Well, I would say that uh, you need to be very careful when we talk about prosecutions, but at the at the outset, I'm not aware of any rule that says you know candidates for president um, will not be prosecuted, and nor am I aware of any Justice Department interpretation uh, that says that. But I think that this illustrates the larger risk of making this all about whether you know, one person, and, and, you know, there are other people who are involved here, it wasn't just former President Trump, but whether one person ultimately gets prosecuted. Um, in this case, you had a, a commander-in-chief who was out of control and who was, you know, apparently, it, it appears, willing to completely subvert American democracy. Um, but the vulnerabilities uh, in our our broader system that he he revealed, and this is in some sense was not true just in this instance, but in many, um, are are deeper problems that that he is not the first one to have exploited all of these, and he might not be the last, as unprecedented as this situation was. So I think that uh, 
I can't speak so much to Attorney General Garland's decision-making process. I certainly think the decision to indict either a presidential candidate or a former president is a weighty one um, that he'll have to think about very carefully. But we can't make the measure of the success of this hearing just, you know, whether Donald Trump or anyone else gets indicted. I think the measure of success has to be from this hearing of did we come to uh, a shared understanding of what happened and that, that, that it's unacceptable and do we repudiate it? And again, that has to be separate and apart from whether you particularly like Democrats or Republicans, whether you plan to vote for Joe Biden to be reelected or what have you. I think a broad shared understanding that, you know, we this is not uh, how uh, the American system of government operates is absolutely essential. And the more you can make it about that broad national reckoning, which is what we remember, incidentally, from the Watergate hearings. You know, people did go to jail in the wake of Watergate. But I think ultimately those hearings were about much more than just criminal prosecutions. And I think these hearings have to be the same. They have to be about much more. Well, Daniel Rina, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Weiner, who serves as the director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Elections and Government Program, where he helps to lead the center's work on money and politics, election security, government ethics, and other democracy and rule of law issues. He previously served as senior counsel to Commissioner Ellen Weintraub at the Federal Election Commission, and he has an article at, and he has an article at the Brennan Center measuring the success of the January 6th congressional hearings. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what is in and what is out of the Senate's bipartisan gun safety reforms. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, John Donahue, who's a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Donahue. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And on Sunday, a bipartisan group of senators unveiled their agreement on uh, gun safety legislation, and this includes the support of 10 Republican senators, so that takes you over the filibuster threshold. So what do you make of these proposals? Let's start, I guess, with what's in them, and then we can talk later about what's not in them. But what do you make of them? Well, it's it's certainly a meager step. Uh, the one part of the agreement that I thought was perhaps most promising was the extension of the Lauterberg Amendment, which was uh, a, a restriction on who would be able to purchase guns because of a, a misdemeanor domestic violence conviction. And that law was limited to uh, constraining the behavior of marital partners of those convicted of domestic violence. Uh, but now, uh, if this bill were to go through, it, it would extend that to uh, boyfriends. And so, in, in a sense, this is being referred to as overcoming the boyfriend exception to the previous federal restriction on uh, who could have access once they were convicted of a domestic violence uh, misdemeanor. And so just to to specify that this is the closing of the so-called boyfriend loophole, which means that under the loophole now, unmarried partners can keep their guns if they were found guilty of violence against uh, whoever they were dating. And in the Violence Against Women's Act, that was a provision to include boyfriends, and that was objected to by the National Rifle Association. So that dealt a blow to the Democrats. And now it looks as if there's an, at least 10 Republicans are willing to buck the NRA. Is that how, how would you describe it? Yeah, so so I do I do think the Republican Party, or at least a number of them, have made a judgment 
that in the wake of this mass shootings, if they don't do something, they will look very bad in, in the upcoming election because uh, the, the public is, is clearly alarmed at this uh, growth in, in gun violence. Um, and so they're looking to, you know, maybe do the, uh, the least that they can do to at least uh, move the needle a little bit without antagonizing the National Rifle Association and the gun lobby too much. Um, of course, the, the NRA opposes this because it would cut into gun sales if, uh, uh, you know, the domestic uh, abusers were not able to purchase guns. So let's go start with the reg flag laws. Pretty modest, right? They're going to increase funding, and already 19 states have red flag laws, and they're supposedly going to improve the effectiveness of established programs. But how effective are these programs? Yeah, well, they, they'll, you know, we, we've seen both uh, effectiveness and ineffectiveness. Uh, the, the Buffalo shooter uh, earlier in the month of May uh, was someone who could have been uh, shunted aside from access to buying guns if, if a red flag law in New York had been applied, but the police did not move ahead, even though he had made uh, significant threats a, a few years back. Um, so I think red flag laws are very good. It's disgraceful that many states have not only passed them, but have passed what they call anti-red flag laws, saying that you know, we will never allow uh, these these laws. And, and of course, that's a very bad sign in general, because even if the federal government ever got around to passing a national red flag law, we know that there are jurisdictions around the country that are so antagonistic to any efforts to, um, uh, you know, take guns away from dangerous people that they would, they would essentially undermine their, uh, their enforcement. So it's, it's not a good situation. I, I think this is a, a very meager step in the right direction, but uh, you, you probably won't get much benefit from this particular thing. Uh, but of course, if you stop one mass shooting, that's, that can be a, a big plus. And in terms of mental health and telehealth investments, the proposal is, is to include major investments, access to mental health and suicide prevention programs, but the Democrats, of course, are a little leery of, of the idea of blaming the situation on mental health because most people who struggle with mental illness are not violent. So what what kind of a proposal is this? I mean, what's going to happen here? Yeah, again, um, it, it it's largely a diversion from uh, the, the, the real problems. I mean, I, I do think... Uh, uh, U.S. mental health treatment is, is not as good, good as it should be, um, but um, addressing uh, the, the shooting problem with this step is, is not uh, going to make a, a, an important or big difference, in my view. So the enhanced review process for buyers under 21 I mean, we know that both the shooter in, in, in Uvalde and in Buffalo's got the guns right away on their 18th birthday. I couldn't wait to get their hands on them. And it only took, what, an hour or so to do a background check through the existing National Instant Criminal NICS system. Now it could take up to 10 days. So is that much of an improvement? You know, the, the, the question... Uh, that we need to ask is, uh, would this background check have prevented either of these mass shootings under this new regime that's being proposed? And I don't see how it would have. It, it's conceivable that it might have uh, delayed it modestly, but even there, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear how it would uh, delay things. You know, this goes back to the Charleston shooting where Dylan Roof waited until his 21st birthday to buy a handgun to then commit his mass murder in a Charleston church. And um, because of the, uh, the inadequate uh, 
federal law, he was able to get that gun. Uh, uh, they, they have this re- requirement that if the uh, background check isn't completed within three days, the person is supposed to get the gun. And then if it later turns out he shouldn't have it, the police are supposed to track him down and get it back. But of course, you know, once they've got the gun, uh, a lot of bad things can happen. So they're trying to deal with that situation. Um, but neither of these shooters, I think, had any uh, mechanism in the current background uh, information set that would have excluded them from getting the gun. So I, I think the background check would go through fairly straightforward for these two. And that shows the inadequacies of our background check system, because both of these people uh, are people under any sane system of gun regulation would stand out as people you don't want having access to any weapon, let alone an assault rifle. So I I do think we need to uh, put into place a a much more um, effective background check system so that people like this are very deliberately screened out. And of course, one thing Congress could do but has not done is raise the age to buy these weapons to at least 21 or ban them entirely, which we once did, which was unfortunately allowed to lapse in 2004. Well, that's, you know, in 1994, he did have a assault weapons ban, and it was sunsetted uh, 10 years later, as you just pointed out. I, the only way you could get the Republicans to vote for it in the first place was to put that sunset clause in. So the NRA and other, other of these so-called gun rights people have suggested that it didn't make any difference, but the record is quite clear that it made an enormous difference. And the banning of guns in Australia after there was a mass shooting there has made an extraordinary difference. So you've got a problem here in post-truth America, don't you, John, trying to convince people of the reality of real statistics? Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the gun lobby is very effective at kicking sand into the eyes of the public and legislators, and you will clearly hear them make claims that are just simply factually in, incorrect. Uh, it is true that the assault weapon ban was much more porous than it should have been, but it still made a difference. And if we were to move in the direction of Australia, we could largely deal with the problem of mass shootings instead of uh, try to ignore the problem of mass shootings, which has been the path of, of so many uh, uh, politicians, uh, uh, you know, predominantly in the Republican Party over the last 20 25 years or so. Well, indeed, a recent poll said that 44% of Republicans believe that it is a price we have to pay, that children have to be slaughtered in order for us to be free. So obviously that's a a difficult road ahead to convince people of the... I mean, the Second Amendment says that the state shall have well-regulated militias being necessary for the security of a free state. Well, we're neither secure or free. And I think that's an argument yeah. that gun safety people should make against the you know, uh, hijacking of uh, the Second Amendment. But let's just touch on a couple more here. The school's security resources. They say they're going to give more uh, funds to help institute safety measures in and around primary and secondary schools while supporting school violence prevention efforts and training for school employees and students. So that sounds a bit vague. What do you think that means? You know, I, I don't see this uh, as playing a huge role, but um, I, I guess you can harden some of these schools so that it's, it's a, a little bit harder for someone to walk in, as, as happened in the Uvalde case. Um, but, um, uh, you know... <laughs> The, the problem is is that um, we, we can't harden every site where a mass shooting can or will occur. So uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not particularly um, uh, hopeful that this this measure will do that much. But you know maybe could make a a, a slight difference in in some cases if if they can lock the doors more quickly or or something like that. 
but it's not it's not getting at the fundamental problem, and, and so that's troubling. And still, in spite of the measure to clarify the definition of federally licensed firearms dealers, the truth of the matter is that currently background checks are not required for gun sales and transfers by unlicensed and private sellers. And that huge loophole continues, does it not? Yeah, it's it's disgraceful and a blight on American democracy that uh, a measure like universal background checks, which is so widely embraced by the public, uh, cannot be adopted by by the Congress because of the opposition of um, the Republican Party in this this uh, uh, filibuster rule that uh, gives a, a minority the ability to to thwart the democratic will on this issue. But it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? That you you have background checks. If you if you want to buy a gun, they run, they put you through this uh, NICS system. Yep. But gun dealers don't have to be licensed. They're not required to give background checks at you know gun sales. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and it's, uh, it's an insane uh, system. So you've got all these guys that are unregistered dealers, and they can sell. To anybody, and you don't need to have a background check. Um, I mean, what, yeah, it's, what does it it's, take it's to an, be an unlicensed firearms dealer? To, nothing. You can just declare yourself an unlicensed firearms dealer and start selling guns out of the back of your pickup truck. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an absurd uh, system. Luckily, a number of states have implemented universal background checks, like uh, California, or uh, but. Um, uh, you know, Texas, uh, for example, makes it uh, very easy for anyone to, uh, uh, you know, s- circumvent the background check system by allowing this enormous private sale loophole. Um, I mean, it would be like having a system that says we're going to try to stop uh, hijackers on planes. And so there's one line that everybody has to go through uh, to be checked for weapons. But uh, if you don't want to go through that line, then just go through this other line. <laughs> and so, of course, the hijackers would go through the other line. Well, have they gotten rid of the incredible loophole where if you're on the no-fly list, if you're deemed to be a you know, potential terrorist risk, you can still buy a gun? Yeah, no, that's, uh, again... Um, uh, shocking uh, m- misconduct, I think, on the part of our officials that, that these, um, you know, enormous uh, gaps in, in a sensible regulation of, of guns are, are not implemented. I, I do think, uh, you know, the references to the Constitution sometimes ignore Federalist Paper Number 1, which says... Uh, a dangerous ambition often lies beneath the specious mask of zeal for the rights of the people. And I think that sums up uh, what's happened with the, the Second Amendment, the, this idea that the Second Amendment gives you the right to have an assault weapon with a high-capacity magazine is uh, a frivolous and, and silly idea, but it's become a dangerous and horrifying one in modern America. Well, John Donahue, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with John Donahue, who is a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice said it something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land Oh